Hey, I'm Jeffrey Rickman, and this is Plain Spoken. This is an episode about Bishop Connie Mitchell Shelton of the North Carolina Annual Conference and the way in which she has uh, forcibly closed Fifth Avenue United Methodist Church against its will in order to keep them going from through the disaffiliation process. So if you don't know who Bishop Shelton is, we covered her briefly on our... Uh, wasn't Bishop Say the Darndest Things. It was... Uh, from the mouths of our bishops. From the mouths of our bishops. We did a, a, a five, three, three to five bishops. We talked about clips of them saying things that, that they said and, and what they indicate. Um, if, you, if you haven't seen that or if you just need a refresher, here is, here is a, a short segment of Bishop Shelton. No more vilification. No more demonization. Will we trust one another's convictions? If not then it's time for those with mean-spirited arrogance to move on and quit causing chaos in the meantime. So she, she goes on from there. It's obviously a, a bigger message than that, and I always encourage people, even though I'm highlighting small bits, uh, go ahead and, and look at the full context of things. Uh, bishop Shelton was only recently installed. She is a new bishop. Um, uh, I, I've been concerned about her for some time because she seems to be very intolerant of right-leaning people like me. Uh, all cards on the table, I am a conservative Methodist. Both churches I serve, one of which is very small, are uh, hopefully going to be disaffiliating from the Oklahoma Annual Conference on the 22nd of this month. So um, as I looked at this story, I, I started seeing this on Facebook uh, a couple weeks ago, um, people in the church just writing publicly and sharing what was going on. I started getting concerned about other small churches like mine um, that are vulnerable in the way that Fifth Avenue uh, UMC is. So um, the first, uh, I've got several documents we're going to walk through. The very first one I want to direct you to was uh, uh, something published by the conference, North Carolina Annual Conference, um, on March 26th, a couple weeks ago, Wilmington Church Closure brings rebirth and opportunity. So let me look at my uh, my notes here. This was something put out by the conference. Oh, and of course, that's the same document. Um, here we go. They, uh, they state their reasons for doing so, too. Declining membership and the local community's clear, present, and pressing needs. These are the two reasons why um, Bishop Shelton and her district superintendent's cabinet uh, said that they would close the building. If you don't know the basic outline of this story, they were going through the disaffiliation process, this small church, and they had a meeting scheduled with their district superintendent where they thought they were going to have their information session and move on towards a, a local church vote. Rather, it, not only the DS came, but the bishop and the, a couple other conference officials were there, and they informed them that they were closing the church changing the locks on the doors, uh, there was no consultation, there was no role for the, the local church community. So the reasons for doing so were declining membership and missional stuff. Um, one thing I will say about the conference leadership here, this is like the only conference document I've read that is not super emotional and saying, oh, it makes us so sad, or if, if they did have that, I just didn't pick up on it today. It was just, um, the tone was not emotional, rather it was paternal. The closure of Fifth Avenue UMC is a difficult decision, but one made with the community's best interests in mind. So if you haven't read uh, the, the head of Good News Magazine, I'm forgetting his name right now, he's published at least one piece 
where he's critiqued um, this attitude of the UMC to be paternally minded uh, in the context of declaring misinformation as though local churches can't wade through varying sources of information. Here, um, the, the inference is that the local church community was not able to discern the needs of the community around them, and so a hostile takeover was needed. Um, they, they said, while we do not regularly send out messages about closed churches, a spokesperson said, due to the divisive climate in the United Methodist Church right now, we wanted to be as transparent as possible about this changing missional opportunity. So I, I think transparency is always good, and I do think it is good for conferences to put out documentation as to why they do things. The problem is when the documentation isn't honest, and we're going to talk about critiques on these reasons being cited. The declining membership problem is uh, there, there's a good 20% of churches in the United Methodist Church that fall into this category that could easily be closed. The missional thing is also problematic um, or disturbing. Um, I don't know what words we want to give to it, but the thing is, um, is the local church an entity of its own, or is it primarily an extension of the annual conference? And what you have here is the annual conference saying, the local church is an extension of us. We have decided there is a missional opportunity right here, and we are going to use this building as a missional outpost to serve the mission that we think is needed here. So uh, it has an FAQ near the, the bottom, and it says that the future care of any remaining congregation members is a primary concern. But I spoke with uh, a member of the local church who, uh, I mean, that she affirmed that there was no consultation with the local church membership, first off. But secondly, they've been locked out of the building. And so it's hard to really believe that the future care of any remaining congregation members is a primary concern. Rather, it seems like it's not a concern at all. What's being alleged by a lot of right-leaning people is uh, the conference is concerned with them not being there. Uh, there. There are feelings of antipathy and hostility towards this local church, which was trying to take the building away, um, and they wanted to hurt these people, take from them what they could, and repurpose it as they saw fit. They make clear that they are not planning to sell the property, so this is not necessarily something aimed at accruing wealth. Rather, they talk about community needs. So specifically, um, we believe this will be a rebirth where the location and church space can meet basic needs for unsheltered people, becoming a gathering space for senior adults and persons with disabilities, provide shelter and assistance following major storms, and be a welcoming space for worship and study for one or more new United Methodist faith communities. Um, as I was reading through this, okay, and then at the bottom they make a, a play for this is a connectional body. So the local church is not a, a congregational entity, it's connected to a larger entity, the annual conference, and that's what gives them the right to, to shut it down and repurpose it. So as I was reading through this, I was thinking of one of my very first uh, appointments where I did work study in, in Boston. It was outside of Boston in this uh, small church called uh, St. John's in Watertown. And uh, that church was a beautiful church building, but it was always having a hard time filling it with enough people. And eventually the conference decided that that community needed to combine with another community, and that church needed to, the building unit needed to be used as a mission outpost center. And of course, I've tried to keep track of that, um, how that's worked out. And from what I can tell, it hasn't been well. Um, 
one of the concerns, you know, as I was talking with the local church uh, membership, there, a, a member that was I was able to talk with, um, there is no doubt that there are people in need of missional engagement in cities uh, and in rural areas all over. But the question is, is the church um, positioned in such a way to be a community resource center? Do you have the right people at play who've built the street cred and the trust with the local community? It's one thing to say there is a need. It's another thing to say we can realistically provide it. So I think it is worth watching what happens here, whether or not they're able to to really muster what, what needs to be done. Um, the, the actual document filed is on the Wesleyan Covenant Association uh, website. We'll have the links to all this stuff placed here. Uh, but you can see how these things are formulated, and this is the actual declaration of exigent circumstances. And so if you haven't heard of exigent circumstances before, I'm pretty sure I have it pulled up right here. Yeah, this is in uh, the 2016 Book of Discipline, page 771, but it's it's paragraph 2549.B? No, point three point B is where it spells it out. Uh, at any time between sessions of the annual conference, if the presiding bishop and the majority of the district superintendents and the appropriate district board of church location and building all consent, they may, in their sole discretion, declare that exigent circumstances exist that require immediate protection of the local church's property for the benefit of the denomination. In such a case, title to all real and personal, tangible and intangible property of the local church shall immediately vest in the annual conference board of trustees who may hold or dispose of such property as it's in its sole discretion, subject to any standing rule of the annual conference. Exigent circumstances include but are not limited to. That's an important phrase right there because it means they can just do it for any reason. Situations where a local church no longer serves a purpose for which it was organized or incorporated or where the local church property is no longer used, kept, or maintained by its membership as a place where divine worship of the UMC. Uh, when it next meets, the annual conference shall decide whether to formally close the local church. So hypothetically, the annual conference can overrule the bishop and cabinet, but that is not likely. That does not happen very often except in pretty dysfunctional circumstances. So if you want to look at that, that legal document, um, I'm not a big legalese guy, but um, I, I, I'm told there are interesting things in that document. You're welcome to check it out. This was uh, followed by an actual press release from the congregation. Um, just some highlights from that. Uh, the local church leaders and parishioners of Fifth Avenue were completely blindsided by the closure, having only been informed the night before during what was expected to be an informational session scheduled by the district superintendent. So this was not something that was done above ground. This was a, a gotcha surprise. Uh, I, I saw an interview with a lady who said, I'm honestly surprised none of us had heart attacks because some of them are older, and it was very surprising and hurtful. Um, so in this press release, it says that the DS was accompanied by the bishop, but we'll see in a later article that um, also there were supposedly other conference officials that came for a small local church that's averaging attendance of 20. Isn't that interesting? I, I just don't even know what to, to think about that. Um, they talk about how strange and hurtful it is to declare exigent circumstances where an immediate action is needed. One phrase that I thought was helpful is, from whom the property needs protection against, 
the congregation is at a loss to understand or know. It just became, they thought that they were entering into a good faith conversation with the annual conference. A disaffiliation process had been put in place. They thought they were going through it in earnest and that everything would go okay. And uh, that was not the case. They were very surprised. Um, they talked about some of the history. They closed by saying, we are playing by the conference's own rules, but now appear to have been completely shut down. It's sad and it breaks our heart to be treated in this way. And for the sake of consistency, I've consistently said that I have a problem with people using emotional, emotive language because I see it as a, a bid for um, a permissive posture towards people that might be behaving badly. And I don't, I don't know if I'm going to talk about it or not. I, do, I don't... I don't know if there's been any bad behavior on the part of the local church. That's certainly not been part of the narrative. The The conference hasn't made any allegation uh, of that. I'm, I'm hopefully going to convince TJ to overlay some footage of the church building. It's a beautiful building, and it's, yeah, definitely larger than a congregation of 20 needs, but even so, seems to me they've been taking good care of it. Um, they they have some theological practices that I I don't think fit easily within the United Methodist Church. I remember in one interview there was a lady who's, who talked about um, it's it's uh, dedicating dedicating babies. Uh, uh, no, I think christening christening babies. It's same thing. There, there's only baptism and that's it. And but there are Methodist churches that have alternative baptismal practices that are like baptism light. So a christening or a, whatever the other word a dedication. These are both problematic because they're not in the Bible. Um, and so, yeah, they might have had some theology that didn't match perfectly with the United Methodist Church. Uh, but even so, I, it's just it's one of these things where it's rules for thee and, and not for me whenever there's not a strict application of United Methodist doctrine in a given place. It's just strange to crack down only on conservative congregations, which this one was. Let's... Uh, Let's look at something else. Let's look at uh, our spreadsheet. It, it's important, you know, we're going to be filling this thing out, and of course we're missing a lot for North Carolina, but at the close of 2021, they had 790 churches in their conference. But if you come over here and you look at who disaffiliated last year, this was before Bishop Shelton uh, stepped in, 249, almost 250 churches disaffiliated all at once. Um, the bishop that was in charge there was Leonard Fairly, who is currently the bishop of Kentucky. We did a segment on Kentucky and Bishop Fairley's uh, example. He was very gracious and tolerant of conservatives wanting to exit, and then he changed his mind. He hasn't been hostile. He's instead just been openly sad and unable to continue with the disaffiliation process. He said no more special called annual conferences. So they had a special called conference for disaffiliation last year, where they lost, what is that, a quarter, more than a quarter of their uh, uh, churches. And so there is no more special called annual conference scheduled. Um, rather, they're just going to have one conference uh, in June 15th through 17th. And I don't know if it's their intention to allow any more disaffiliations anyway. They have a disaffiliation agreement that supposedly other churches are going through. I don't know how many are going through it. I just know that this one church trying to go through it rather than the conference faithfully walking through with them, decided to kick them out of their own building and repurpose the church. This church, as I said, is not a, a big church. This uh, umdata.org is apparently, uh, we're, 
we're, we're learning as we go. This is a website of the GCFNA uh, General Council of Finance and Administration. It, it tracks the stats on individual local churches, districts, conferences, uh, jurisdictions. It's been very helpful for us to kind of get a handle on things, and, and you can see some basic information. The, the pastor is, is not this guy. I was told the name of the current pastor, but he's out of the country. Phil Stroyter, he's from Fuller Seminary. He's the current pastor, and supposedly he and the custodian are the only ones who uh, have the keys. The, the congregation's last worship service in that building was this last Sunday, Easter Sunday. And uh, from now on, they're going to have to find a different place to meet. Um, when you look at, uh, they have 207 professing members. They have an average attendance of 18 at the close of 2021 that supposedly was going up. Uh, they paid some of their apportionments and their missional giving. Their total spending is 87k, and then their total income was higher than that. For a lot of people, this might seem like a really small church, but this is actually quite normal within the United Methodist denomination. We are a denomination of lots of small churches planted all over this country. I'm proud to serve two small churches, um, one with an average attendance of about 15 and another with uh, an average attendance of shy of 50. Um, and I love it. I think the small church is, is wonderful, um, but I realize a lot of people are packed into large city and suburban churches, and this just seems ghastly to have these low numbers. Uh, but it's actually quite common, and I'll tell you, wonderful, amazing, God-glorifying things happen in small churches. Just because a church is small and or declining does not mean that it needs to be closed. One thing uh, I do want to point out. Yeah, please. <clears throat> I just looked it up randomly. Um, Wilmington does have 12 other United Methodist churches. Um, I don't know if they're all actually open or not, but there are 12 there. So it's kind of... For a church that small, that that kind of makes sense with 12 other churches. For 100,000, I believe, is how many people are actually in Wilmington. Mm -hmm. So just just throwing that out there. So to your mind, does that mean that it really was unnecessary to close down their building and repurpose it when they could have easily just built a new ministry into one of the other 12 other churches? Um, I'm kind of on the fence about it. Like, it wouldn't... like. If there's 13, because they would make 13 other, 13 United Methodist churches in Wilmington alone. Yeah. Um, I, I'm kind of indifferent on on whether that's justified or not. Like, I think there are, are other motives, and we'll get to that when we get to the uh, WCA article um, mm. that they lay out another historical um, thing. And I, 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 I'm kind of leaning towards the it's the historical issue. Um, rather than they need a missional outpost in Wilmington. So you um, think they wanted it not for the real estate value, but for the historical value? Yeah, take 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 my opinion with a grain of salt, but I, I see it as this is a 175-year-old church um, whose original land gift they allege was to be in perpetuity to, they, they say the United Methodist Church, it wasn't the United Methodist Church then, it was the uh, Methodist Episcopal Church South. South yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I, I kind of take that. That makes sense to me that they would do it for that purpose. Maybe maybe they saw that it was important that that gift continue within the United Methodist Church, and they see it as a uh, uh, perpetuating the legacy of the person that donated the property. Yeah, this is this is the hard thing. <clears throat> 
about any local church ministry. I remember whenever I came here, I was aware that there was going to be a split and I was going to be on the conservative side of it. And um, and I knew that there were people here who were not, you know. But as I did ministry here, I spent a lot of time intentionally learning who the former saints of the church were who went before, learning the history and legacy of this church, and intentionally as pastor, you know, talking about that and making myself a part of that as one who's carrying on the history and legacy of those who came before. And so there's a a real disagreement going on right now, not just about who's on the right side of history or who's right with God, but also who is legitimately carrying forward the legacy of those who built these churches that we're now in. Um, How does one even determine that, and is there an unbiased way to determine that? I I just don't even think so. It It seems to me to just come down to power politics, who has more power, and um if the conference has more power, the, the, the thing I, I closed out on our video with Florida was it sure is hard to have power and not use it, you know, which I think that is the example of Christ Jesus who could have called down an army of angels to, to save him from the cross but chose to be subject to, to worldly powers for the time being. I, I think what we're seeing is the United Methodist Church in some areas, some leaders have power that they're just willing to use without scrutiny, or uh, uh, it, I don't have the right words, but it's it's just a problem that, you know, as we read the WCA article or the Juicy Ecumenism article, both authors say, where where's the stopping point? You know, what's to keep hostile takeovers from happening more and more? Um, so yeah, what are the guiding principles? I If they do have a concern for well, we ran into this in our process. They wanted our historical yeah. membership records All going back a long way. 1989. So what do we do? Or I said 1989. 1889, they wanted all of them um, all the way back before the UMC even existed. So what do you, what do, you do with them saying, we want to preserve the history, and us saying, we want to preserve the history? It's really hard to, to yeah. take sides on yeah. that. And I don't know... It's you can't say what's in another person's heart. You know, it could be that that Bishop Shelton and her leadership are big history buffs and they want to maintain the history. Could also be real estate value. The the allegations of the articles we're going to read are that she's just petty, that she's just a, a mean autocrat that is not. If she can bully churches, she's going to. And it I don't know. Be. It could be I, all of them. And. I, I don't know if I was in that situation. Um, I, you know how much I love history, so I would be—I would probably be inclined to take the position that the annual conference did. Say we need to historically save this. Mm-hmm. They've only got twenty members, where there's twelve other churches in the in the area. They can, if they want to, go to another United Methodist Church. They can go to these, but we need to historically keep this. I—I I, I would be hard pressed to say that I would do something different in that case. Yeah. So, yeah. That's practicing that golden rule. Good for you, brother. (laughs) Well, yeah, in our conference, so, I mean, our church is robust and healthy, but uh, what body is is more likely to have the longevity to uh, protect this history in perpetuity? Is it us that have half a million dollar net uh, worth, or is it the conference with multi-million dollar net worth who has an entire floor of the OCU library just for Methodist historical stuff. I mean, it seems that they are better positioned for preserving that history. But it's just, it's not, it's hard. In the long run. Yeah. I mean, who's to say? It's only time's going to tell. Yeah. So. 
Well, let's let's move on. Let's look at their Facebook page. I like doing this because uh, I don't know. Um, they're in the middle of a big city. They have 187 likes and 206 followers. That is ostensibly uh, what their church community looks like. Um, so yeah, if you have an average attendance of 20, that that means you have 40 or so rotating in or in and out. And um, I liked going through their 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 photos and videos and and seeing uh, celebrations. They they celebrated 175 years, and um, they they have a beautiful building. It's fun just going through their their pictures, and uh, it seems to me that they maintain their property quite well. Um, they obviously love their property and their uh, history, so it it breaks your heart to see this happen to them. Uh, I sure hope that the the conference is able to maintain this property because it's just gorgeous. Um, let's talk about Michael Grabowski. We've leaned on him for some Arkansas reporting. He He's with the Christian Post. His beat is the mainline church, and he's been—I I like his perspective. I think he does a good job portraying the dynamics at play. Um, what are some things that I could highlight about him? Uh, I think just... Okay, so Justin Williams Pope was a, a member that was interviewed, um, and here was the quote from him, Fifth Avenue never asked for, agreed to, or wanted the closure, nor were its members ever given a chance to participate in the decision to close the church down. I asked the the rep from their church if they were pursuing legal options. I didn't know if they had... According to this article, an attorney first hired by the church is named Jim Shea, say. Um, I don't know if he's still with them. They're exploring alternatives. Um, here's a quote from the DS. Membership and missional activity of Fifth Avenue has recently declined, and the church has a membership of 205 and average weekly attendance of approximately 20. And then it has a... a well, let me read this whole paragraph because I wrote yes, so it must be good. Over 1,800 churches left the UMC in 2022, largely because of the years-long effort by the theological progressives to change the denomination stance prohibiting the blessing of same-sex unions and the ordination of non-celebrate homosexuals. Usually, whenever you read non-Methodist sources, they're going, they're leaving because they hate the gays <laughs> to some degree or another, they're a bunch of bigots. But this really is, it's, it's just being so tired of antagonism from the left that just will not quit. Although these efforts have failed, many progressive leaders within UMC have refused to follow or enforce denominational rules on LGBTQ issues. Last November, the UMC Western Jurisdiction voted to make the Reverend Cedric Bridgeforth of the California Pacific Conference a bishop, even though he was in a same-sex marriage. Uh, legit criticism, charges being filed against him were summarily dismissed because uh, the person making the charges said he was doing so publicly, and they said that that uh, violated confidentiality. Just a miscarriage of justice. All right, let's uh, move on to the WCA article, Chaos in Carolina, Seizing Assets and Closing a Church, of course, authored by Jay Therrell. I've been saying his name wrong the whole time. I interviewed him. It was an excellent interview. You should check out the Jay Therrell interview. Um, so he... he uh, gives a brief overview of what happened, and uh, I think I've already recapitulated most of this. He has some segments from the Book of Discipline that I've already quoted. Um, in his reading of the exigent circumstances paragraph, paragraph 2549.3.b, he, he gives some—he he was a lawyer, by the way, uh, Mr. Therrell. This is a broad paragraph that has potential for extreme 
misuse. This is going to be something that Lumparis also capitalizes on. Uh, Fifth Avenue, with a worship attendance of 20, is still larger than 235 of the then 785 churches in the North Carolina Conference. Um, that was according to 2020 stats. I'm sorry, I got that cut off right there. So I don't know how many of those 235 already disaffiliated, but that is a huge proportion of the conference that is a comparable size. So hypothetically, if there are missional reasons for doing so, the, the, the bishop could hypothetically cite the same paragraph and close down 200 churches, which would just be incredible. Um, so what is the guiding principle here? What are the limitations or boundaries here? I, I don't really understand what it would be that would summon this level of drama and ire from conference leadership. That It really is a mystery to me. I don't know what's going on. Outpost. Yeah. Yeah. What they were saying would be, uh, and she said, "Well, there's not much of a need uh, here as there is anywhere else. Like anywhere else in Wilmington, there's a need, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's not a uh, pervasive, acute. It's not a, an acute need area. Yeah. It's it, just like anywhere else. Sure. Yes. Okay. Um." So by the standards that the bishop cited, or it wasn't the bishop, it was um, who filled out? Grace Southern filled out this this legal document. Um, By that standard, there are many more churches in the North Carolina Conference and the entire denomination that should be worried that they are next. So that's kind of hyperbolic language, but this does volunteer this question of, is this the only place, the only time it's going to happen, or is this the beginning of something much larger? How can we know? Um, so when they say that there's been a sharp decline, he he contests that. He looks at the stats going back six years, and it, it was not clear that the the, nom- the congregation was in free fall. Uh, it talks about Mr. Miles Coston. He's the one who gifted the property to the, the MAC South, and he wonders. It's hard to imagine Mr. Coston would be an advocate for the wildly progressive agenda that today's UMC embraces, however— He's dead. We don't know. And this is something that hurts me anytime we're trying to figure out what needs to happen with property and assets that were gifted by people who were dead. It's just, how, how do you read minds of people that are dead? Because <laughs> seances, if you don't know this, uh, are bad. <laughs> if you read about the Witch of Endor and King Saul, don't do it. It's bad for you. Hypothetically, maybe it's possible. Don't do it. Some people just went, this guy just went crazy. I can't believe I've been listening to him for <laughs> you, you 20 minutes. I just want to go back and, and read that's the alleged reasons for seizing the assets, um, just because I think that's important. It's what I was talking about earlier. It's that first point um, up at the top of that article. It says, uh, whereas, this is the affidavit filed by the New Hanover County Records by Grace Southern that you were talking mm-hmm. about. Okay, um, great. It says, whereas the original property for the church was donated to the church trustees by Miles Coston in trust pursuant to a deed which provided that the land was donated for the purpose of constructing a place of worship at which the ministers of of the Methodist Episcopal Church South, now the United Methodist Church, would be permitted to preach God's holy word, quote, forever hereafter. So that's kind of why it leads me to think that that's 
the historical reason that that they're seizing the assets because there's 20 people here on a good on a good Sunday and um, are they actually taking care of the building like do we want to lose that 175 year old asset that's uh, pretty important to the community or just let it go yeah the thing I just realized as you're reading through that is it was very explicit that he wanted it to maintain as a place of worship not a mission outpost right yeah but but I think they put in there that uh, oh well maybe we'll other worship. churches other churches can use it too so sure okay uh, there's uh, implications of a property grab, and then um, he talks about this dynamic that I talked about in the Florida piece we just did, that as uh, there are different classes of conservative churches that leave the denomination, there are fewer and fewer votes at annual conference that are going to be sympathetic to conservative congregations that are navigating this stuff, so they've already lost a huge chunk. I wonder how many—I wonder—we need to find out how many more are trying to disaffiliate this year. Um, so he talks about if the Judicial Council can help them. He says even if they could, 2553 expires at the end of the year and the Judicial Council doesn't move that fast. And then there's the lawsuit option. Um, final thought here. This is not how Christians should treat fellow brothers and sisters. Seizing assets and throwing people out of their church home with no consultation or notice is the kind of actions that take place in dictators, dictatorships. So that's, I pray Bishop Shelton and her cabinet will reflect on these actions, realize the harm they've caused both to Fifth Avenue and the denomination, and undo their decision. So I, I think that's a good prayer to say. Uh, there's always things that, that we don't know going on behind the scenes, but some things really are black and white. It seems clear to me that it's just, um, it's wrong. <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe it's not as clear. For historical reasons, maybe it's, it's not wrong, but I, I just think... I think that people matter more than history, more than money, more than property, and when you have a corporate entity that has a clear identity and you rob them of their assets, and I would use the word rob, you use the power you have over them to deprive them of the assets that they have been entrusted, it's just a problem. Well, there's the, the UMC argument that it's actually the annual conference's assets, not the, not the local, so... Yes. Plan advocate. No, no, we need that. Yeah, it's important to always remember what the other side says so that we're not doing the straw man thing. So, all right. So, the last article is John Lomparis, who, of course, is um, IRD, um, and he's, he's gifted at the um, uh, uh, strong speech as well. The, qu- the uh, title is It May Happen to You Too. Bishop Connie Shelton Shows the Danger of Staying United Methodist. Um, so he, he does have some hyper, it's funny whenever I've talked to him, he cautions me against hyperbole, but then he says hyperbolic things that I wouldn't say. If you try to leave me, I will greedily and sadistically impose needless pain and suffering on you is how he, he summarizes, uh, the Bishop's actions. Um, I do agree with his, uh, uh, characterization of what she did as an unforced choice. This is something that easily she could have just let go, seemed gracious, let go of, uh, uh, sort of inconsequential property. Uh, I would imagine there's a lot of 175-year-old properties in that well, area. yeah, North Carolina, and I'm sure they've got yeah. a lot of them. So she didn't have to do this. There was nothing, but the fact that she chose to is an unforced thing that that shows her hand and shows uh, the poison that's in the water and, and what can happen. Um, he puts in bold here, as long as you remain United Methodist, this whole article is a, a warning to... Uh, conservatives in the United Methodist Church who are putting their trust that things can't go too wrong. He says, 
as long as you remain in the UMC, you will remain at risk of being ambushed by the Connie, Bishop Connie Shelton treatment. At any time your congregation or fa pastor fall on the wrong side of personal biases or factional prejudices of your current or future bishop, or if your bishop is feeling particularly greedy in ogling your congregation's property, beware. Your bishop can suddenly kill your church, seize your property, take away your pastor, and drive away all members just as quickly, unexpectedly, and harshly as Shelton did. Now, that is obviously hyperbolic, dramatic language, and there are a lot of centrists that and liberals who will hear that and go, that is just fear-mongering. But the, the question he asked, that Theral asked, that I would ask is, what is to keep this from happening again and more frequently, more broadly across the denomination? Where are the guardrails on this? And I think most people would say decency. We have decent bishops, and I, I don't know if that's something that we can or should take for granted. Um, he talks about some of this history here. Um, I, here, let me, let me talk about some key portions because I know we need to wrap this up. The fact suggests that the pretext for suddenly killing this conservative congregation and seizing its reportedly valuable property is simply not honest. And we've talked about, okay, was there really a missional need? Was the decline in attendance really that that big? It doesn't seem that they really were exceptional in this case. Um, yeah, he says, uh, while this is smaller than United Methodist congregations I'm used to, it is not unusually small by United Methodist standards. Nationwide, GCFNA has reported that 19.6% of the United Methodist congregations average between 1 and 19 weekly worship attendance. That's one-fifth of all United Methodist congregations are in this same category. Um, let's see, what else? He Oh, he talks about the hypocrisy of, um, you know, the DS who is overseeing them before she was made a DS, her congregation, this is before COVID started, saw an 8% decrease in one year, and yet they didn't uh, take exigent circumstances there. Um, <laughs> I thought that was kind of a low dig. But if that is going to be a reason you cite, uh, we need to, to be looking at these things. And then he also makes a dig at the whole annual conference. He says the whole conference, even before disaffiliations, has been steadily declining, as most annual conferences have been. Um, he, uh, he quotes from the disciplinary language and notes the very broad language and unpacks it. He says, uh, as long as conference officials declare the magic words, exigent circumstances, they can do whatever they want. They just need uh, uh, a majority of the conference leadership. Um, there clearly do are no defined boundaries of what may count as exigent circumstances, and we focused on that language we went when we went through it. He talks about the parties needed to make this decision, and he says, you notice who's missing? Any leader or group from the congregation itself. So within the disciplinary language, they have the authority to close down churches against their will and seize all of their assets. They don't have to be included in the process. And remember, district superintendents are direct deputies of the bishop, and they are unlikely to oppose their boss on such a matter. So it would be a very rare thing for a bishop to say, we need to declare exigent circumstances on this church and their DSs stand against them. That's just, maybe that could happen if they were going nuts, but it's just not going to happen. Um, <clears throat> is there anything else? Oh, he, he talks, this drives me nuts, and I understand why people do it, but you can't say that someone got in trouble for 
uh, being accused of fear-mongering and misinformation for telling Connie. I want to know who that was. Uh, but now Connie Shelton has proven such fear-mongering to have been well-grounded. He makes clear here he's not doing the overt, crazy fear-mongering. He says, I'm not saying that your bishop definitely will ever close and seize your particular congregation if it remains United Methodist, but it is simply an objective fact that your bishop could do so at any time. Can you imagine the chilling impact it has on congregations and pastors if you know that the bishop has the ability and maybe the will to close down your church if you say or do anything wrong down the line? Um, as someone who's closely observed United Methodist bishops for years and has met most of the active U.S. bishops, I say advisedly that there is not one U.S. bishop who I could now firmly, confidently trust would never do such a thing. I would not have said this six months ago. This is quite a sentence, you know, to imagine that every single bishop is now possibly able to do this. And then he also talks about even if they're not willing to do it personally— not one bishop appears willing to pick on someone their own size by publicly challenging Shelton's outrageous bullying. And this is what's been bothering conservatives for a long time. If we had some rogue bishops that were stepping out of line, but we had some faithful bishops that were publicly correcting them and saying, you know, filing charges against them and, and, and having this robust discourse and purifying the church, then I think conservatives would want to stay and be a part of that. The part that's just made it abundantly clear to conservatives that they have no place is that there aren't any bishops that are going to correct the excesses of far-left uh, behavior, as, even on the part of other bishops. They have the authority to do that. They're just not going to. So that's that's a thing that's really concerning. Um, he says that Shelton actually campaigned as a bishop, saying that she would be uh, friendly to conservatives based on um, this behavior, based on the clip I've played for you, I, I think it's become clear that she is not friendly. Um, it amounts, uh, making the major choice to remain in the new United Methodist Church, he says, amounts to knowingly subjecting your congregation to an endless succession of future bishops, enjoying such absolute power over your ministries, and placing absolute faith in all of these future bishops, always having their character, never to abuse such absolute power before you have any idea who these bishops are. When he phrases it that way, I'm not sure what's wrong with phrasing it that way. I, I actually think he reveals there that uh, that it's just putting you, yourself and your church in a very vulnerable and dangerous position. Um, yeah, I don't know that I can speak any more to that without risking getting in trouble, but I don't agree with the characterization of Lon Paris and others as doing fear-mongering. I think that conservatives have good reason to be very concerned. And then he makes a pitch for the GMC in the end, which is not the purpose of my podcast, so I'm not going to do that. We need to wrap this up. Um, I, I realize that um, a lot of this could be seen as making a play for just getting a lot of clicks and views based on the drama, but I, I think what I hope someone who watches this sees is that we really are trying to see things from the institutional angle. We're trying to steal man and uh, allow for gray area where there is some but we have to acknowledge the overall picture that, that the UMC is an increasingly hostile place for conservatives. There's increasing antipathy towards conservative congregations. And now there seems to be the will and the means to just straight up seize conservative congregations and take their assets. And that's very concerning. So, um, you know, I guess if I would have an exhortation to anyone in leadership watching this, I would exhort them to make some kind of public declaration that this is not going to become... Uh, a normal way of dealing with conservative churches that are hard to deal with. 
I, I, I'm just going to continue to hope that there can be a gracious exit for churches that can't be happy and uh, that we can look back on this in a couple years as a time when we uh, listen to the angels of our better natures. So anyway, be in prayer for the UMC, um, especially Bishop Shelton. Um, I just think I've looked at a number of bishops, and it seems to me that they're surrounded by institutional pressures that often um, cause a shift in their thinking from where they were before they were bishops, and I think it's uh, it's important to remember our first love and our and our um, first principles. So, anyway, I'm not saying that she sold out. I don't know her at all, but I am saying it's got to be really hard to be a bishop. So, pray for the bishops, and uh, if you know anything that I don't, leave it in the comments. Uh, you can write me at plainspokenpod at gmail dot com. Appreciate your corrections, your encouragements. Um, uh, share it if it's been useful to you. If you think it'd be good for other people to know about. God bless you. God bless the United Methodist Church. I'll see you later.